Connects talks connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This life science-focused podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the X Talks Life Science Podcast. I'm Aisha Rashid, Senior Life Science Journalist at xtalks.com, and this week I'm joined by Sydney Perlmutter and Vera Kovacevic. Thank you for coming today. I'm going to start us off with a story, or rather, um, a special day today, actually. I'm going to be talking about Parkinson's, World Parkinson's Day, rather. And um, that is marked every year on April the 11th. So by the time you hear this podcast, of course, it would have passed by a couple of days or so. Um, but April is Parkinson's Awareness Month as well. So the whole month of April marks bringing awareness and raising um Uh, attention around Parkinson's disease and to really uh, highlight the reality that's faced by individuals living with Parkinson's. Now for some stats, uh, more than 10 million people worldwide are currently living with Parkinson's disease and in the U.S. about 60,000 people are diagnosed with the condition every year. Now, of course, uh, gaining greater insights into the causes of Parkinson's disease is important to helping find effective treatments for it. Now, I, you know, to mark World Parkinson's Day and Parkinson's Awareness Month, uh, I found a story that, um, or rather new research that shows um, the potential effects of cholesterol-lowering drugs on uh, the risk of developing Parkinsonism compared with those who don't take it. So a new study by researchers at Rush University Medical Center, which was published in the online issue of the journal Neurology, shows that older adults who take cholesterol-lowering statin drugs may have a lower chance of developing Parkinsonism compared with those who don't take statins. Now, Parkinsonism is a term for a group of neurological conditions that cause issues with movement, such as tremors and slowed movement and stiffness. Parkinson's disease is a type of Parkinsonism, and Parkinson's disease accounts for nearly 80% of all Parkinsonism cases. So Parkinsonism and Parkinson's disease can often be confused with each other, but an important distinction is that Parkinsonism typically doesn't involve a tremor and it affects both sides of the body. In contrast, Parkinson's disease affects one side of the body more so than the other. And this is um, sort of a general thing that is seen with Parkinson's disease compared with Parkinsonism. Now, statins are a class of drugs that are used to help lower cholesterol in the blood and prevent atherosclerosis caused by the buildup of cholesterol-containing plaque in arteries. Uh, Statins have also been shown to have anti-cancer as well as neuroprotective effects as well. 
So the lead study author, Sharam Ovey-Segaran of Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, said in a new news release that the results of their study suggest that people using statins may have a lower risk of Parkinsonism and that may be partly caused by the protective effect statins may have on arteries in the brain. And um, so the study involved about 2,800 um, participants with an average age of 76. Now, the individuals in the study did not have Parkinsonism at the beginning of the, the study, and um, about 33% were taking statins. So participants were evaluated every year for an average of six years to look for signs of Parkinsonism throughout the study, as well as the status of their statin use. So people who had two or more of um, a list of, uh, among a list of symptoms were considered to have Parkinsonism, and these include uh, tremor, stiffness, Parkinsonism. Parkinsonian gait, which is characterized by small shuffling steps and overall slow movement, or bradykinesia, which is difficulty with voluntarily moving the body quickly. So making quick uh, sort of jerky movements, like people have problem with that. Now, at the end of the study, the results showed that 50% of the participants developed signs of Parkinsonism. Now, of those, the 936 who took statins, so in the group that took statins, 45% developed Parkinsonism six years later compared with 53% among uh, the 1,900 or so people who had not used statins. Also, of the participants who had been taking statins, those that were taking moderate or high-intensity doses, which was 79% of the group, they actually had a 7% lower risk of Parkinsonism compared with those who were taking low-intensity statins. And after adjusting for age, gender, and vascular risks, such as smoking and diabetes, which can impact Parkinsonism risk, uh, the study investigators found that those who had been taking statins on average had a 16% lower risk of developing Parkinsonism six years later compared to those who had not been taking them. Now, one of the caveats of the study is that since Parkinsonism assessments were not performed by movement disorder specialists, Parkinson's disease could, n could have been misclassified. In addition to this, the investigators also looked at the brains of about a thousand individuals who died during the study time period. And what they found was that people who had been on statins had a 37% lower risk of atherosclerosis compared to those who had not been taking statins. So the lead study author, Dr. Oves Agarin, said that although more research is needed, statins could indeed be used in the future to help reduce the effects of Parkinsonism in the general population of older adults. So this is not just, you know, people with high cholesterol who are at risk of stroke or heart disease and other issues, but statins could be used, used as a preventative um, tool in delaying or prolonging uh, or lowering the chance of developing Parkinsonism. 
Um, and he went on to say that at a minimum, uh, their research suggests that things like brain scans or vascular testing could be beneficial for older adults who may be showing signs of Parkinsonism, but they but who don't have classic signs of Parkinson's disease or if they don't respond to Parkinson's disease medications. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on this new research and any thoughts on World Parkinson's Day and Parkinson's Awareness Month. So from this study, I was surprised that by the end of the observation period, um, you mentioned that 50% of the participants developed signs of Parkinsonism. So I was surprised that it was... 50% 50% of, of those participants. I know that, you know, the average age was 76, but they did not have Parkinsonism at the start of the study. And then by the end, it was like 50% of them showed signs of it. So that was quite surprising to me. Um, another thing that I didn't know is that an examination is needed to um, to determine that diagnosis. So there's actually no blood test or laboratory exam that diagnoses for this diagnosis, right? It's just um, observational. Yeah, I think um, that is primarily the way that Parkinsonism disorders or conditions are um, diagnosed. I know for Parkinson's disease, though, there are, you know, you can have brain scans as well. But for Parkinsonism, I think it's just because it's uh, a bit more broader, I think it's hard to, you know, pinpoint any changes in the brain. Um, perhaps because, you know, again, it's such a uh, sort of a general condition, and you may not see uh, changes in the brain. So I think it's primarily diagnosed, yeah, based on on movement and uh, physical assessment. Uh, Parkinsonism, yeah, that is. You're right. They also do do an MRI or a CT scan just to make sure that nothing else is going on. Yeah. Right. And the thing with, um, I think you know, fifty percent of the people um, developed. Parkinsonism, I think that also reflects the fact that perhaps they had early signs or symptoms at the beginning of the study, but maybe they were just either missed or they were just so subtle and mild. And so as the study progressed, they may have developed more um, overt and more um, serious or more like not severe, like, yeah, maybe more severe as well, symptoms of it. So that might also be um, a thing that it might have progressed during the study. The the unfortunate thing with Parkinson's disease is that over time, the symptoms will likely get worse. However, Mm -hmm. on a bright note, according to the Parkinson's Association of Canada, life expectancy for those with this disease is the same as those without Parkinson's. Hmm. Okay. I actually didn't know that. So the mortality, I guess uh, Parkinson's doesn't increase mortality then um, significantly, yeah. I guess. Hmm. Huh. That's One thing I will add about that is that even though I guess the mortality is at, there is no difference, the quality, quality of life, of life exactly. during, during yeah. you know, yeah. this, however long the disease takes its course is certainly limited. Um, yeah. And um, 
some might even say that that is, uh, you know, a, a not a good thing. In mm. fact, it, it may be a bad thing um, if it lasts 10, 15 years, exactly. especially for the person who has it and can, you know, maybe during the beginning stages can recognize that it's only going to sort of progress further. Um, but that is a really interesting study that that you brought up. And I think Parkinson's is 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 very prevalent um and i'm sure uh you know we know people or have friends or family members who have had it or have at least known someone who's had it um so i think this is um you know it's great to bring awareness of it and it's also i feel one of those diseases similar to alzheimer's and other Mm -hmm. you know forms of dementia that just all they really require is more research um, and time to hopefully one day find cures or at least treatments um but yeah i'm i'm hopeful i think all we can be is hopeful um but yeah thank you for bringing up that study it was very interesting and pointed out a lot of things that i was not aware of Mm -hmm. yeah definitely we can all learn from sort of um you know these kinds of studies and just learn more about the disease itself and like the devastating effects and although you know they say that it's not a death sentence but exactly like you said Sydney I mean the quality of life it's uh can be very uh devastating so it's definitely something to consider you know when you're trying to when researchers are looking at treatment options and and um doctors are trying to you know really manage the disease so it's about um, disease management at this point because there was no cure for it. But I think it's really also interesting how, you know, statins seem to be kind of like a wonder drug almost. Like it seems like they can do anything and everything. Um, I remember um, actually, you know, in my master's, we were looking at statins to as a radio sensitizer um, to, to kill cancer cells. Um, I think it was lung and prostate cancer cells. We were looking at that in the lab. And, you know, this is a cholesterol medication. So it really has a, it seems to have a lot of um, pleiotropic effects. And so it was really interesting to see that, you know, maybe taking a statin a day, like I think aspirin was that kind of a wonder drug before that, oh, you know, aspirin can prevent heart disease and it may have other health benefits as well. Um, and we're seeing, seeing kind of like the same thing with statins now uh, in terms of having, you know, um, an impact on other things. And it was very interesting to see that it could have, um, I had heard that it has neuroprotective effects and it does make sense because it, it does impact um, the buildup of plaques and things in the arteries of the brain. So perhaps that's a mechanism by which it can also have neuroprotection or offer neuroprotection. So I thought that this was very interesting. Um, and what do you think about, you know, I mean, it's not conclusive or anything, but does this give you like um, sort of hope in terms of like preventative measures? I think that's a lot of people are always looking for preventative measures, I think, with any kind of a disease, like how to prevent disease as opposed to, you know, just having to treat it once you get it. So I think um, we might see people, you know, getting on statins um, who may not have thought about it before. Okay, so I'm going to move on to our next story. And this is about a very interesting um molecular test um, by a startup company called Gene Drive PLC. 
So this UK-based molecular diagnostics company has developed a genetic test that can prevent deafness in babies. So this is a molecular rapid genetic point of care test, or POCT. It's known as MTRNR1, or also as the gene drive system. And what it does is that it screens for a particular mutation that can induce hearing loss in babies if they're treated with the antibiotic gentamicin. The test can be administered at any hospital or clinical bedside, and it generates results in about 25 minutes. Now, the gene drive system, or MTRNR1, is the world's first genetic swab test technique that replaces conventional genetic testing, and uh, which, you know, that can take up to a week for results to be available. So this really slashes the time um, in terms of um, how quickly you can get results uh, through this test. So gentamicin is the preferred antibiotic first-line treatment for newborns um, that may develop bacterial infections such as sepsis, and it's given within about an hour to patients who are admitted to intensive care. However, um, for those who have inherited a genetic variant, um, and this is just a single nucleotide change from an adenine to uh, a guanosine, and um, just a single dose of gentamicin can actually lead to permanent hearing loss. So this is in individuals who have this particular variant. Now, approximately one in 500 babies is born with this antibiotic-sensitive genetic variant. And in the UK, gentamicin is administered to about 100,000 babies every year. So this means that almost 200 babies every year could be saved from hearing loss in England and 14,000 around the world every year. So this test is a classic example of pharmacogenomics or personalized medicine, um, wherein um, you can actually test for a specific mutation, and then clinicians can make the an informed decision based on the molecular profile of a patient to decide the appropriate treatment based on the presence or absence, um, in this case, of this particular genetic variant. So again, this is a very classic example of uh, also precision, targeted, personalized medicine um, approach to treatment and care. Now, um, looking at this test, so Gene Drive's MTRNR1 test is being uh, already rolled out across three neonatal intensive care units um, that are part of the Manchester University NHS Foundation Trust in the in the UK, and these intensive care units are the were, uh, the first in the world to use this device in a clinical setting. And more rollouts of the test across MFT will be following shortly. So the test was introduced in these neonatal intensive care units after a successful uh, performance trial of the device as part of the pharmacogenetics to avoid the loss of hearing, or PALO, or PALA. PALOH study, which was conducted at the neonatal intensive care unit at St. Mary's Hospital in Manchester, England. Now, that trial evaluated the device among 750 neonates that were admitted to the ICU, and it screened them for the, this particular gentamicin-sensitive variant. And the genetic screening information was used, was used to guide prescribing decisions. 
So the mtRNR1 assay uses buccal cells, which are basically uh, cells from the inner cheek that are collected with the swab. And in preclinical validation, the gene drive platform had both an assay sensitivity and specificity of 100%. And real-world results from the PALO trial showed a sensitivity of 100%, a specificity of 99.2%, and an accuracy of 99.2% as well. The trial also showed that the test can detect the presence of this particular genetic variant um, in about 26 minutes compared to traditional lab-based testing. So they did a head-on um, comparison, and of course, those lab tests, the traditional lab tests can take days to up to a week to get results. So Gene Drive's test received backing from the UK National Institute of Clinical Excellence, or NICE, which gave the hearing loss test a new MedTech Innovation Briefing, or an MIB. In a press release, Gene Drive said that MIBs are designed to support National Health Service, or NHS, social care commissioners and staff who are considering using this new Using, considering using new medical devices and other medical or diagnostic technologies. And the company said that this briefing, this MIB that it received, um, was an important step to help increase awareness about the new device with the NHS to ultimately support its adoption in the UK. And so far, this test is only available in the UK, but it'll be very interesting to see um, once they start applying for regulatory approvals um, in other parts of the world. So I wanted to get your thoughts on this. I thought this was pretty cool. Uh, again, a very um, great example of personalized treatment. Yeah, so I realized that this antibiotic, gentamicin, has to be administered very quickly once they realize that there is an infection in the baby. So typically it is given for emergency purposes and it has to be given as soon as possible so they really needed a rapid but extremely sensitive test mm. and the fact that this one can deliver results in 26 minutes means that it's absolutely going to help yeah whereas before you know if you if a test needed to come back within a few days it wouldn't really there'd be no point right yeah i mean it Absolutely. In this case, you know, time is of the essence, right? So you, you can't wait around for a test that's going to take a couple of days. This is like really going to be game changing in terms of having this point of care tool where you're going to get results um, almost immediately. I would say it's about 25 to 30 minutes, but having that information in a timely manner and then to have that to inform decision making that's very very powerful and again like you know molecular profiling i mean it's used in so many other areas especially oncology uh, where you have targeted therapies and those are prescribed or given based on a, a patient's um you know the characteristics of a patient's tumor so we have so many examples like BRCA1-2 or HER2 positive breast cancers um, and a whole host of other um, EGFR positive and um, a, so many other examples that we have and so this is really great that we're seeing 
um, you know, this kind of personalized molecular profiling, you know, and then translating into personalized care in other areas as well. And I had no idea that, you know, just, you know, the thought that like just a single mutation in a single gene can lead to such uh dramatic or severe consequences such as hearing loss right um upon giving this specific antibiotic so this i think this is where we are definitely we've been moving in this direction um you know in in medicine for a very long time now i I would say you know a decade or or two so this is going to really be more and more so what we're going to see in the future so you know if you go in for something your doctor might do a a quick test to see you know if you have a specific uh, genetic mutation or a variant that might help inform what drug is best um, uh, for you specifically and I think uh, we're going to again see more and more of this uh, heading into the future and I just want to get your thoughts on in terms of you know there's always this sort of thing about um, in this case, okay, in these kinds of tests, they're just looking at one particular gene, right? But, you know, you can have whole genome sequencing and all of that genetic information, you know, whose hands is it going into? Uh, and would you be comfortable, like, knowing every single mutation you have and and how that translates into risk for certain diseases and the anxiety that comes into play with that. So there's a, like, I think we talked about this before too, but I think there are a whole host of issues around um, genetic information and in terms of who and how that's shared and used. Yeah, I don't think that um, any regulatory agency at least has finalized like definite guidelines on that um, use in the future. I think ultimately it should be an individual choice um, up to the individual. And of course, they're, you know, with all the strict privacy laws should be in place there um, to help protect that individual if they so choose to know their results. Um, I I do think lots of people would would want to do the test, especially if they Mm -hmm. maybe have like family members with some conditions, they may want to know if they also have that. So... Yeah, so you have like genetic counseling and all of that in play there as well. So, yeah, but in terms of uh, a test like this where you just are looking at one gene, I think it's so powerful, like where we've come, you know, in terms of personalized treatments and uh, and to really um, prevent a lot of severe things that can happen, like this test in hearing loss in babies. I think it's it, it's uh, it's. Pretty yeah, awesome. <laughs> and I also saw online that the Gen Drive test, the one you described, it's um, right now for use in the trial, it only costs around 80 pounds per baby to run this test, which oh, is not okay. that much yeah. money. No, which is great. Yeah. So again, like I think the more ubiquitous these kinds of tests become, I, I think the prices will also go down. And so that's that's really great that it's... Uh, uh, like these tests are very accessible. Yeah. All right, that's the end of this episode of the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you liked today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks everyone and see you next week. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to the X Talks Life Science Podcast. 
If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find Xtalks on social media, email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalk.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.